Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. And as usual, I want to thank all of you that are supporting the show via Patreon. It really makes a difference, so thanks again. So after seven episodes exploring quality research and the value of its methodologies and its methods, it's now time to dismantle all of that and talk about everything that's wrong with quality research and why we should move beyond it. I'm only half joking, because in this episode... I'm speaking with Dr. Jenny Setchell about a counter-movement against quality research in the form of post-quality research. And Jenny is a research fellow in physiotherapy at the University of Queensland in Australia. Her research interests include post-structuralist critical perspectives on healthcare. Her PhD was in psychology and focused on weight stigma in physiotherapy. And Jenny's experienced in a range of qualitative and post-qualitative research methodologies. And she is a founding member and co-chairs the Executive Committee of the International Critical Physiotherapy Network. And she's also a member of the International Society for Critical Health Psychology. So in this episode we speak about post-qual research as a way of rethinking the reasoning and thinking which has underpinned the practice of traditional qualitative research. We talk about how post-qual challenges the humanist tradition of qualitative research. And with that, we talk about the idea of thinking with theory, which post-qualitative research strongly advocates. And I've linked a book in the show notes in the same name by Alicia Jackson. And we talk about how post-qual strongly rejects any theory-method divide that reduces qualitative methodology to a matter of technique. We talk about how post-qual is concerned with contravening what has become normal, routine, assumed and expected in qualitative research, so that the approaches to research inquiry align with post-theories. And Jenny shares what she feels post-qual has to say about data, methods and analysis. And finally we talk about what can quality researchers take away from post-qual approaches? And whether we need to take all of it and jump ship completely, or that there are some useful ways of reflecting on perhaps changing the way that we think about and practice quality research. So I absolutely love talking to Jenny. She's had such an interesting and diverse career, and this comes through in the cool, gentle, yet confident way that she talks about post-qual research whose arguments could shake the most dedicated qualitative researcher. But there was nothing fanatical about Jenny. Her balanced view of post-qual and how she feels that it can sit alongside more traditional qualitative and quantitative research approaches was just brilliant. So I bring you Dr. Jenny Setchell. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Oliver. It's nice to be here. 
So I suppose we could start by just setting out the, the, the context for our, for our chat that we had originally kind of planned to do a hybrid critical theory chat and then introduce post-qualitative inquiry research. And then I did a bit of reading and got some comments from you on some questions and it seemed to me it would be kind of prudent to separate the two and spend and dedicate some time to both of them separately. Hence, Anna Riala kindly took up the critical theory mantle and we're going to speak about post-qualitative inquiry research or PQI. Yes, indeed. No, I think that's that's a wise choice because they're quite different things, actually. Um, although they they do inform each other in some ways, they they can actually be quite at odds at times. In fact, yeah, and we can explore how PQI is, is built on critical theory, and and I suppose I don't know if if you want at some point whether we give some. So it's curious that this conversation is essentially a critique against qualitative research and it sits within a qualitative research series. So whether, and, and this will be positioned probably the penultimate episode before Dave, Dave and, and mine uh, can ask us anything. So hopefully listeners would have listened to potentially eight episodes advocating for qualitative research and the value of, of these approaches for generating knowledge. Is there some kind of prophylactic remedy that you want to give listeners that have spent eight hours <laughs> listening to episodes about quals, or either now or at the end, that it it wasn't wasted time and there's value in all this stuff? Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, in our, our earlier discussions, there was, I, I said to you, it's quite brave to put this in on <laughs> a series on qualitative research because, yeah, it's arguing against some of the ways in which qualitative research is currently practised. Um, is moving towards being practised. Yeah, so it's kind of almost a a counter, like the post part of post-qual means against or I guess after. But, of course, I'm a qualitative researcher as well as a post-qualitative researcher. I think there's value in having lots and lots of different approaches, so I absolutely wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. So please... um, for those listeners that get confused, this is kind of, you know, not qualitative research 101. It's taking all of qualitative research, its histories into account and considering, you know, where some of the problems can be in it, I guess, um, and thinking of other ways beyond quant, beyond qual, beyond both of them, I guess. So it's quite a challenging space. It's a new space to work in. It's still being formed and almost in the way it, it, because the post also comes from things like postmodernism and post-structuralism. It's about breaking down structures and ideas. It's about moving beyond solidification of things, which can be quite scary when you're new to a concept. And I think that's one of the reasons why I said, warning, this is, <laughs> this is a brave move because really this is about breaking down solid ideas of what things are and moving beyond that. Um, so as we explore it further, I'm sure we'll go into that a bit more in detail. No, that's great. That's definitely settled my nerves. Good. <laughs> but maybe we could start by you introducing yourself and you've had a really interesting academic and clinical journey. Yeah, so I've had a few careers. Um, my current one is as a senior research fellow at the University of Queensland in the School of Health and Rehab Sciences in the discipline of physiotherapy so I'm back in physiotherapy (laughs) Um, but my PhD was in psychology but I've become more of a um, sociologist actually so 
sociologist of health, sociologist of physiotherapy. Um, there's a few of us in the world, but not very many at all. So it's a nice space to be in because it is a little different. Um, but yeah, my clinical career was mainly MSK. I worked in private practices usually as a physiotherapist, but I did lots of other little bits and pieces, some volunteer work, and I've worked in jails, I've, I've prisons, <laughs> I've worked in uh, remote uh, small hospitals where I've been the only physiotherapist. I've done volunteer work in countries outside of my own country uh, in, of Australia. And um, yeah, I've also been an acrobat, uh, arts worker. So I've done lots of different things before I started my academic career. And, and I do draw from both my clinical career, but also my arts worker career a lot in my uh, research life. And if you're going to map out your research journey, a common journey is starting in, in quant because that's uh, usually forms much of kind of undergraduate education and clinical education and then move to qual and then perhaps subsequently dipping toes into post-qual? Yeah, n- not okay. Not entirely, maybe a little bit. So yes, I was also trained in quantitative research as a physiotherapist and then do- doing my master's in musculoskeletal physiotherapy, I continued that journey. After that, I moved into a PhD and very quickly as I started my PhD, I became interested in critical theory. And so I was in psychology. It was critical health psychology that I was interested in. And that was when with Dave Nichols and Barbara Gibson, I helped form, and this is right at the beginning of my PhD, the critical physiotherapy network. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I was thinking critically very early on, yeah. which led me to qualitative methods really was okay. appropriate. And I used in my PhD, so my first ever research, the first first study, which is my most cited study mm. still, is a mixed method study, one of the only mixed method studies I've ever done. I might be one of the authors on some other ones, but really yeah. has been very small part of my work, almost no part of my work doing quantitative research. So I've, yeah, I did a survey methodology for the first one, which was about weight stigma and physiotherapy. So that was a critical study in, in that it was sort of questioning some of physiotherapy's norms and practices around how we conceptualise people considered to be overweight or obese. And, um, yeah, then the other studies in my PhD were all entirely qualitative and using um, various methods, none of them the same as each other. <laughs> and do you identify as a particular type of researcher now? Do you do you kind of feel like a if you're at, I don't know, a dinner, do people serve dinner parties? I don't know, dinner parties. My parents had dinner parties, <laughs> but let's say you had a dinner party. And, oh, you know, Jenny, what, what kind of researcher are you? What's the first thing that you say I think I would now say that I'm I'm a sort of sociological researcher which I guess if I define that in lay terms it's consideration of those broader social uh, contexts and considerations of things like power differences um, in research so that that definitely includes that the Mm. kind of critical theory element of things and I would say that I'm a bit of a qualitative methodologist I'm very interested in qualitative research I've taught methods a lot and um so I'm aware of a lot of, I'm absolutely not an expert in, in any of them, I'm sure, but I'm quite quite aware of the range of qualitative methodologies uh, and and quite aware of being able to use theory to think through research, which is a bit more the post-qual end of things. Mm. Well, that brings us on nicely to the thing that we've kind of been, I've been dancing around and we haven't been dancing around it, but I suppose if you were going to lay out, I guess back to the dinner party example, if you're going to simply describe what post-qual was about, what would be your simple kind of layman's 
explanation or, or description? I don't think I gave you a very simple answer to that previous question, but I'll try with this one. So the the first bit that's not simple about it is that one of the foremothers of qualitative research, of post-qual research, sorry, uh, Elizabeth St-Pierre, says you can't ask that question of qualitative research, post-qual research. You can't say what is it. It's more about what it does, really. So that, that does make it difficult if we've been true to post-qual but um, my, I guess my key points about it is that it's against kind of post-positivism, which is the concept behind most quantitative research these days and some qualitative research, a lot of qualitative research these days. So it's moving against that idea, which is really about, you know, these, these ideas that there's a truth to be found out there in the world that's simple to access. Or um, if we just write, ask the right, right questions, we can access it. So it's against kind of rigid structures, things like methods, set methods, set methodologies. It's against checklists. So that's kind of saying what it's not <laughs> rather than what it is. <laughs> but So it has kind of more fluidity in it. It tends to be caught up with theory. So it's theory really that's the method and the methodology particularly the methodology so it's kind of moves beyond methodology and we use mm. theory to think through data it also questions what data is <laughs> so it throws out this idea that <laughs> the data is the interview perhaps um, the transcript right it might be the mm. many things it might be the person conducting the interviews the question that is asked in the interview is also the data, the room that you're in when you do the interview, mm. the transcriptionist and how they've managed the interview data. It can go on like this, or it may not involve interviews at all. For example, we've recently done, and again, I'm laughing at myself, I'm not giving you a simple answer here. So, for example, we um, did a recent post-call study, which is currently under review. I've just um, submitted a revise and resubmit on it. And in that one, we were looking at this website that some of us had designed and the data was really our feelings in response to that. So it was an emotional data most. That's, that was kind of what pushed our analysis of the website. So it's very different from a rational cognitive type of analysis that you might usually do to say how well or not this um, website was working, I guess. So it might be, you know, from a quant perspective, you test the website and see if people get better or worse. It's a health information website. See if people get better or worse after they've accessed the website. So that would be a quant comparison between, you know, a um, placebo website or something and, and the actual website, whereas a qualitative yeah. study might interview people to see their opinions and responses to the website um, and their experiences of it, whereas we weren't, we weren't, health information seekers. We just looked at the website, watched the videos, um, read through sections and see, like used our emotional responses to guide our analysis of the, of the website, which was quite interesting. So back to your, or to your example, not your example, but your recent submission where you said that your, your emotional responses to the, to the website, et cetera, that was the data. But you could just record, I mean, when you uploaded your paper, you couldn't input your emotional responses in kind of, 
but you had to convert it to text. And these were reflections. You couldn't kind of download your emotional responses and just put them on your paper. You had to you had to convert them to text, so you had to reflect on them, write them down. To uh, isn't that ju- isn't that just? But isn't that just kind of reflective, yeah, yeah. auto ethnographic type reports as data, which is part of kind of traditional qual. So yes, there's elements of autoethnography. What was different was we used theory to think through our emotions. So we we actually coined the term afflexivity. So affect and reflexivity joined together. Okay. Um, and we use Sarah Ahmed's theories on emotions. So her theories on emotions are that emotions are sort of socio-cultural political concepts that get stuck to particular things. So we use three of her kind of subcontexts to think through those emotions that we've experienced. And so we definitely did not take them on face value. We interpreted them, we considered them, we explored the website, the human and non-human aspects of the website, the, the data to um, think through how this website might be experienced by the world, by, um, by people accessing mm. it, who might feel included or excluded, uh, lots of different aspects of it there. So the post-qual part, I was talking about the data, but the post-qual part is also the direct use of theory to think through that data. Yeah. And so so that was the simple description. It's <laughs> a terrible <laughs> job of doing a simple description. But I suppose but I suppose the more complex one is touching on some of the, the the movements, if you like, which are building this argument for PQI. So things like, you know, humanism, post humanism, post structuralism. And I know that these are kind of weighty ideas which I am not expecting you or anyone to kind of give us a full kind of lecture on what they're about but are there ways that ways that you can describe them which which might be useful to listeners that perhaps aren't aware of, of some of these theories or these ideas so post qual really tries to move beyond humanism to the posts so post structuralism postmodernism and post humanism is a really common um, approaches to to thinking with theory in this context, so and but and also common approaches to reconsidering how um, breaking down these concepts of set methods and and things like focusing on human experiences, mm. which ironically that data was a human experience, but uh, that I was just talking about. <laughs> but um, we argued how that fit, fitted into a kind of post-human approach, actually. So there's these efforts to decenter that human rational thought as being able to be taken at least on face value, which tends to underpin kind of that humanist qualitative research. So that's people's thoughts, attitudes, opinions, experiences of kind of a more phenomenological approach, for example. So it's moving beyond that. And it's moving beyond critical theory and that certainly early critical theory tended to be much more humanist as well. Uh, sorry, so maybe that might be a nice segue into the, the linkage or the lineage between critical theory and post-qual and how are they unhappy cousins or what's their relationship? They fall out. Is it that the critical theory has got so critical that they, they're going to move a step further towards you know, post-humanism, et cetera? 
Yeah, the post-critical probably fits okay with it. So if you put post-critical, then that, that brings in post-humanism, post-structuralism definitely, and post-modernism. So critical theory was much more sort of a humanist-type approach, which really sort of preference things like, for example, you know, Marxism and early feminism, sort of structured humanist kind of approaches. So that was a very structuralist approach. It said that there are these structures in the world that create, so this is the critical part, that create power differences, government, class structures uh, in Marxism, in feminism, you know, male versus female. So it was a much more structured approach to understanding power, whereas the post came in and talked about power as this more dispersed kind of concept. And that's where... Um, you know, philosophers like Foucault and Deleuze and Qatari fit into this picture. And in doing that breaking down of structures, if you really read into these types of post-critical theorists, then this aligns nicely with post-quals attempts to break down the structure of qualitative research as well. So what uh, Elizabeth St. Pierre, again, what I said, who I was mentioning before, who's one of the mothers of post-core research. She's from an education background. So she said you can't, it's very hard and many qualitative researchers have done this or tried to do this. It's hard to use post-structuralist theorists such as Foucault in qualitative research because their whole concepts are kind of against this kind of structuralist, well-structured approaches to research that qualitative methods are often defined by. And will, like you said, she's one of the four, one of the four foremothers. Mm-hmm. And I'll link her. She's had some big, a couple of big kind of seminal papers introducing post-qual, and a few videos. Some of one of which is on the Critical Physiotherapy Network website. So I'll just link those because I've watched them and great. And I suppose when I, you know, when I did watch them, it it created some, as I mentioned before, some emotional reactions about. She's been quite critical towards methodologies and approaches which I'd become really, I guess, invested in professionally and academically and personally. Is it the case that post-qual is calling for the demolition of that it should that it replaces qualitative research, or it's just an additional way of inquiry, or neither can both coexist, or they're quite happy that qual remains in in some form, but there's this alternative way. I definitely can't speak for other people, but I'll speak for myself. Sure. And so I'm definitely, one of my post-call papers uses the concept of multiplicity. And uh, I'm definitely a pluralist or a multiplicitous kind of person in that I think that there's great, it's great to have a lot of different approaches, a lot of different ideas and ways to um, approach uh, understanding the world and moving the world forward in various ways. So for me, it's not not about throwing out qualitative research or, or even quantitative research for that matter. I think if we didn't have any quantitative research around, I would be a quantitative researcher, for example. <laughs> uh, I think it's just about, you know, using as many different ways as possible to access knowledge and and the world and understanding how to rework it and rethink it and, and make it work better for everybody. So for me, it's not about that. There may be, I've, I've read different things from 
the the four people of <laughs> mm. of post qual, and certainly sometimes it seems to be about abandoning it, and that it's impossible for the, them to live together, kind of yeah. thing. But I, I think that tends to be more focused on your thinking while you're doing that work, rather than these shouldn't exist in different settings. Okay. From from my reading of it, so no, I wouldn't be. I would be against throwing those things out. <laughs> Uh, and again, I'm, and I'm not trying to get you to comment on other people's thoughts, but nonetheless, the question sounds like I am asking you, but I obviously want your your thoughts. And I suppose one of the criticisms that PQI levels at qualitative research is, as you described, that a version of qualitative research, which is kind of positivist, kind of technique and methods focused, atheoretical. And I think qualitative researchers would, would recognize that bad qualitative research or as they would recognize as poor non-unscholarly qualitative work and would be completely on the side of the post-qualitative inquiries but wouldn't necessarily say well we've got to abandon interpretivism or or, or move completely so I, I i wondered what what form of qualitative research that elizabeth Pierre and you know, the, the, the movement is really criticising which version because it's not the one that I really recognise. Yeah, it's, and this is a really good point and a nice place to sort of discuss where this term post-qual really came from and matters. So certainly it it's relevant in health because we are, as qualitative researchers, I'm counting myself as a qualitative researcher in that statement, as qualitative researchers, we <laughs> are getting taken over in some ways by the post-positivist movement. There's more positivist researchers starting to do qual research. Uh, it's become more and more common for things not to be ethnographic, for things to, to take those more standardised approaches. So um, things like semi-structured interviews, which which are which are just descriptively analysed, you know there is definitely a movement and and surveys as well, for example. So there's definitely a movement uh, away from the more exploratory or theoretical approaches to qualitative research. Certainly, post qual is perhaps already done a fair bit, particularly in critical qualitative research. There's um, a centre in Toronto, for example, which is you know, doing, it's a bit more humanist, but still doing something that borders along the post-qual kind of scheme of things. Similarly, sociology tends to approach things with theory anyway, uh, and maybe arguably very similar to post-qual approaches. So, you know, post-qual has come from education. It's good to realise that. And health is another area that's really been attracted to it, I think, uh, because of those incursions really of positivist or, or post-positivist qualitative research, I guess. So, yeah, so it matters in that way. And I think, so for example, I was listening to that great second podcast of this series on grounded theory and one of the, and, and you know, I really like the grounded theory approach. It's not one that I've used, but I certainly, I think that, you know, some really wonderful research has come out of there and some great shifts in practice, et cetera. But, you know, their concepts are to really, you know, use all these methodological steps really rigorously and, you know, use them really well and, and do the same 
you know, there's variations, but really like stick to these steps, right? Or else it's not proper grounded, grounded theory. And, you know, so post goals really against that. It, it thinks that those steps in themselves are, are reproduced in some ways in the findings. It limits what you can sort of see and know in the world. And same with like semi-structured interviews, there's particular things about interviews, no matter how creative you get, a, well, maybe less so if you get more creative, like if you do walk-along interviews or something like that. But regardless, there's some things about those interviews that are artifacts into the, you know, there's there's this, it, it does produce a particular kind of data and a particular kind of result. And that's a shame because it limits our way of exploring those, whatever those issues are that the interviews are intended to explore. Yeah. So post-calls, I guess, trying to remedy that in some ways. It's like it's using these approaches that are completely, like particularly with the, with the elements that are exploring data as, you know, as being something quite different from what we might expect. Like, for example, in that multiplicity paper I was talking about, we just constructed a patient out of the three of our memories of, of working as physiotherapists. So that was with um, Dave Nichols and Barb Gibson and myself. We, the, the patient that we explored, we explored 10 minutes of a fake consultation, a made up consultation in huge amount of depth in this very theoretical paper where we explored how someone with a hip replacement was, um, multiply that their hip replacement was considered quite differently within these 10 minutes of clinical, a typical clinical interaction within physiotherapy interaction. So that data would not normally be considered, you know, reasonable data to use, I imagine. But just on, so I suppose, on the grounded theory point, and only because, again, it's the methodology I've invested in, and, and I suppose, t- to your point, you're, you're right, there are some, I suppose, methods or analytical processes within grounded theory, which will lead to or, or help your interpretation of the data and be struck by some of the differences and kind of variance amongst participants and we've called them methods but these are just ways to convey or to communicate to people about how to think about data and and, and I'm not, it's not certainly not the only way but so even in the in the the postcard paper you submitted there was a way that the three of you thought about data and you know were struck by the differences or your your gaze was kind of drawn to certain things and if i asked you jenny how did you how did you do that like what was your what was your method and it might be a method that changes between different projects that you do but you'd probably be able to describe something around i don't know which sounded like induction or something you're drawing kind of conclusions from kind of data or thinking about possibilities or looking to test those initial thoughts out with some additional data I, I, I mean these are i'm you know i'm no cognitivist but i would imagine there's certain ways that a brain can work and the kind of things fire and that kind of human reasoning so isn't it the case that the methods are just descriptions of way to, ways to think about data and yes they're probably overly kind of rigid and they sound quite confining but but I don't know. I just it's, it's because your post call study, I would imagine you would have had a set of a, a method section, or, or not. I mean, you have to describe how you reach your fi- findings. So there are findings in a po- so the minute you make that description, they're they're methods, aren't they? I mean, they're and then if someone says that's a great study, 
I'd like to do something like that. Maybe not replicate it, but explore something similar. I really like the way you did it. I might try and do something similar. And then we begin to create a set of methods. So how, how do we, how do we avoid having methods? So I think, I think that's the point is that we, the post call is trying to avoid having set methods and keep recreating them, making different ones. So to go into more detail of that study, we used two papers that weren't, oh, one of the, one was um, Simone. So one of them was Simone Fulliger's work on post-qualitative research that was published in uh, one of those uh, qualitative sports journal publications. Yeah, so we used hers as a way to think through the, so we used that before we, so the processes were, we read two papers. One was Plut's understanding of, um, as a discourse analysis of patient-centred care. And the other one was Simone Fulliger's paper on post-qualitative research in, in the context of sports. She was introducing it to that discipline. So we, we all read that. Some of us were um, positive, um, qualitative researchers, uh, quantitative researchers, sorry. Some were um, social theorists. We came from public health, from... OT, physio, sociology, biology, there's patients there as well. So a really like we intentionally kind of created difference in that room. We spent two hours. Um, so, so we read these um, papers beforehand, had a, like jotted down notes on our own responses to um, this uh, website. And then we met in a room for two hours and discussed it together. And then um, I took down notes mm. from that recording of that discussion which went in all sorts of places and then we hadn't pre-described any kind of theoretical approach that we we're going to use so we sort of played around with some ideas of what theoretical approach might be of interest here what might add something that's sort of not typical way of exploring low back pain which is what the website was focused on so we landed on emotion theory as being something that would add something different so in all those stages we're kind of doing something quite different something that's not necessarily easy to replicate and I'd say you couldn't replicate it because the people were you know I couldn't even pull those people together again I don't imagine so you know we're creating our methods we're way way away from sort of set methods there uh, and then as we created sort of the analysis through our sort of iterative um working through yeah we didn't call them results uh, and we we didn't call we call it post qualitative inquiry actually our methods section so we sort of describe what we did but yeah they don't fit neatly into some uh, standard kind of methodology so yeah all of that all of that work that we did though for sure it's you could replicate sort of replicate that as as a methodology but um that would be against kind of the way like why not do it differently a different time with a different set of people and different theories and, you know, or, or just one person or, or whatever. But yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So that makes sense. If you think about grounded theory, where it came from, the methods were really poorly described early on. There was just a book mm. that came, you know, came from a time for dying and awareness of dying, which are two sociologists that just wanted to understand that, that experience and process of dying. And the, the methods were pretty rudimentary. And likewise with ethnography, it was just, you know, social or anthropologists spending time with, with, with groups. And what, and I'm sure at that point, these researchers were like, weren't methods centric. They weren't necessarily, they were more focused on the purpose, if you like, and the outcome. Ultimately what happens is this stuff gets codified and people think that's, that was really good. That let's, let's, let's write a book about what, you know, that approach. 
and then you end up with lots of methods. So do you, do you imagine that that whilst you guys are pioneers, if you like, in this in this new approach, that there will be a temptation to begin to formalize these really creative, interesting methods because they work. Like you, if you're, if, if the paper's super interesting and it's transformative, all that stuff, people want to do that again because it it had a good outcome. It had produced a nice, rich, useful knowledge. We could create our own methods, but there's some great ones here. Let's do those. Absolutely. So I think Postqual would argue against that. Like it would say, keep moving, keep trying to find new ways, mm. new ideas of what data might be, new uh, new approaches, new di- new and different concepts to use or theories to use. So I guess that kind of is the the essence behind Postqual is to to keep moving in that way and keep experimenting in that way. Yeah, I guess there's an intention. Yeah, I suppose that way it, that it really is trying to resist that whereas i I guess the early qual researchers were reasonably happy that wasn't they weren't necessarily looking to to be they were maybe initially created but wanted to expand these methodologies to make them more usable and be taken up by different groups and sections of of research and if we think critically it comes from the power structures the reasons why we've had to sort of make these methods more concrete is for funding is for legitimacy in in the health context in in you know in that kind of more positivist biomedical world we've we've been asked to do that so that we can justify our work in a way that's understandable to those people right so it's it comes from it comes from the power structures that we're trying to fit into and and trying to you know manage research careers Mm. within sort of force us into that you know I, i review for the National Medical Research Council here in Australia. And, and I understand there's lots of constraints to how you can present methodologies. You really do need to do it in a way that you know that it's going to be primarily positivist or post-positive mm. as people reading your work. And it's, it's hard to do work without funding, obviously. So, so maybe on that point about just judging the quality of, I mean, this is a thorny topic even qualitative research how to judge you know uh, know, trustworthiness or rigor if you like if you're that end of the spectrum but what does what does pqi say about quality strategies built into research how do we judge a good pqi study from a not so good pqi is there such a thing as good and bad well conducted not well conducted is it similar kind of notions within within qual or is there something different i'd say it's I mean, there's a whole lot of different ways in which qualitative research is assessed, uh, and some of those would definitely not be appropriate for post-qual. So the checklist approaches like the CORAQ or, or something like that would, or, or the qual strobe ones or whatever they are, certainly that would be inappropriate because we're trying to, to you know, get outside of those structural approaches where um, those ask for very particular things. Yeah, so definitely not that. But there are some much broader types of criteria. I'm thinking of Tracy's big tent criteria. So some of those might be relevant, for example. I think there's eight big tent criteria. Some of them not so much. But these concepts of, you know, is the topic of interest and and important somehow? Is there kind of an adequate investigation of whatever it is? You know, has it got some kind of depth to it? Or some kind of point to it, I don't know, in some way. Does it open up new ideas would be quite relevant in post-qual. And, you know, obviously there'd be 
almost always use of theory and is is that done in a way that's I'm trying to avoid some of those typical terms. It's it's quite difficult to to speak about um, in some ways. But you know, is the theory applied in a way that makes sense? That's sort of continuous. Um, you know, this is where Postqual came. You know, and said that if you're trying to use theory like Foucault, you can't really use methods that are very structured because it starts to break down. Foucault's post-structuralism from the start. So if you're using a post-structuralist mm. theory or a Deleuzian theory, for example, um, you want to make sure that that carries through the way you've written the work, the the way you've approached, perhaps approached collecting the data. Or, you know, I've used these theories to, to examine, you know, standard data like interview data, but I have to argue why I'd be using these and, and sort of how I've differently understood these interviews perhaps or, you know, worked against the sort of structuralism of creating interviews to um, to, to come up with some something new from them. That reminds me of another paper that one of my PhD students led, and it was, I'll, I'll share it with you. I, I can't remember the full title, but it's got the word gorilla, as in gorilla fighter, gorilla, um, gorilla gardening, <laughs> yarn bombing. Wow. Being, you know, this, this idea that I guess gorilla fighters... Uh, were underground and had to sort of use sort of all sorts of different sort of strategies to be able to exist and, and continue in the world. So we took one interview that was kind of this rogue interview. This is how Tim the Tim Bartlett, who's um was my PhD student and now Dr. Tim Bartlett. He, he, this was an interview that just didn't fit properly with the others. So he um, re-examined this in a post-call way. It was almost a practice run for his PhD work, which is very post-qual. So he he re-looked at this interview, um, which, you know, the the person that was doing the interviews for him, the research assistant, she had real difficulties keeping this interviewee on track. He was saying all these amazing things that were nothing to do with the research topic. So she kept trying to bring him in. So we looked at this kind of dissident interview uh, and and it was fantastic exploration. It really, like, it was kind of almost a methodological paper in that we played with these ideas that he had in relation to actually the um, initial interview question uh, or the research question from that other study that he did. But it also really made us challenge what's seen as useful and what's not, how interviews can be really constraining and how things like research questions actually can be quite constraining as well. Yeah, no, so the research you said that you know things like research questions can be constraining, and I suppose well, how do you? I mean, the nate even inquiry, even like you start with a, you start with a question. I get that you can't ask a question which is, which is which captures everything. Like it's got to be a question which is focused on the problem that you're kind of interested in. But you've got to start with a question. But maybe the problem become something else and shouldn't it be able to be once you start exploring it? You could start with a question, but you should question that question. And I think good qualitative researchers do that as well, right? And adapt it as they go. But I think it speaks to the fact that if we're really constrained by our methods, we'll start with the question, stick with the question, you know? Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, that's one of the things post-qual would agree with is, is, um, not necessarily posing a question or not being rigid about it as well. I think one thing I, I really do like about the post-qual, the stuff that I've read and, and kind of listened to is, which Psyche 
totally identify with is this kind of dualism in research like you're either a positivist or you're either a interpretivist and i mean it, it kind of opposes all of those kind of dualistic ways of thinking right whether it's i could be picking up if i completely missed all of it if i'm wrong if you like but the idea that you're either or, either or. You're either quant research or qual research or positivist or interpretivist. And that seems to be that black and white way of kind of presenting or thinking about things isn't always that helpful because things are a, bit, a lot more fluid than that. Yeah, so with its post-structuralist theory or um, particularly post-humanist theory, it's kind of this new way of looking at objectivity or materiality so it's not either sort of humanist or material. There's so many ways in which those things are blurred in between. So it's not either discourse or material in that way. So, yeah, those dualisms are things that we try to work to break down in post-core work. But in mixed methods, they would look to say, well, we've got the answer for that. It's called pragmatism. And if we just draw upon, you know, we can kind of fudge fudge the two epistemologies, quant, qual, and it often is a bit of an unhappy marriage between the two. But I suppose the, the reason why it works is that they would say that it, the reason why it works is because it works, because the, the knowledge which is generated by mixed methods offers a solution to a problem. So it's, it's tr- truthfulness lies in the fact that it was useful. So that's the notion of pragmatism. But mixed methods doesn't fit well at all within post-qual, no. No, absolutely not. So both of them are quite epistemological and post-qual is against epistemology. So it's moved beyond that to an ontological way of thinking. Now that's where it gets tricky to explain. (laughs) So um, that's about the world being created as it's done and it's moving away from these ideas that, that knowledge is separate from that. So it thinks of knowledge as creating the world. So as it, as it, as it happens rather than we can take knowledge as a separate thing outside of that. So that's where methodology gets thrown away and epistemology gets thrown aside as well. So it would look at, I think, <laughs> I would, if I'm looking with a post-qual lens or a post-humanist lens at a mixed methods study, I would say that the epistemological approaches or the methodological approaches that are used are so much involved in, in the data that you can't really separately entangle those. So, yes, you're seeing a sort of interpretive approach perhaps in one, unless they're doing it in a very post-positivist way, which is pretty likely in mixed methods. So with their interview study or whatever that qual part is, and then they're using a very positivist or post-positivist approach with their um, quantitative research as well. So that gets really entangled in in their findings. um, And for me, they are creating a particular way of seeing whatever their research question is or two particular ways of seeing it, um, which can't really access the problem in the same way that um, post-qual would. So to me, that's an attribute that I've always considered it as an attribute that there's real consistency between your epistemology or rather ontology, epistemology, methodology and methods that these each have to justify the next and there's a kind of logical uh, consistency amongst them all and i thought that was quite <laughs> i thought i was being quite clever doing that <laughs> but that's nice and tidy right yeah yeah exactly 
Yeah, but absolutely um, that's not the case. <laughs> and I know and even from a qualitative perspective, when I did my, um, I, I was lucky enough to be able to sit in, in some graduate training in critical qualitative research at the University of Toronto, and it was absolutely fantastic. So th- they showed how every me- research method has been pretty much used with every research methodology, with every type of epistemology. So those things can get really mixed up. It, it may be more difficult to justify mm. how it works, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think we, we again, and that's a bit post-qual in a way in that we, we find some quite different things from mixing those things up. I definitely think there's some, maybe some knowledges that are easier to access with particular methods, for example, but that doesn't mean we should always use those methods to try and try and get to those knowledges, I think. So, for example, experiential studies is quite maybe, you know, something phenomenological is probably quite hard to access through a survey, for example. Uh, It might be better to do ethnography or an interview or something like that. But it doesn't mean you can't can't use other approaches to try and get at that. Yeah, I certainly can see that you can, but isn't isn't it the case that those epistemologies or ontologies are based on a set of premises. And if you, if you contravene those premises by matching them up with a different set of assumptions, you can, of course, you can do that. But I imagine that these would be logically inconsistent. They, they are, they're not talking the same language epistemologically. So how can you possibly bring them together? Because they're foundationally, they're, they're, they're quite different. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily entirely the case with a method and a methodology. And then if we don't really believe in epistemology, then that's quite difficult to bring in there as well with the methodology. <laughs> so I guess it's, it's all quite radical, isn't it? I mean, it's really moving. It's, it's a real departure from well-established, well-developed methodologies and methods and ways of thinking about qualitative research. And I suppose, do we have to, and you, you briefly, you did answer this in, in, in the beginning, but maybe just say a bit more about whether or not researchers can take away bits of PQI to to kind of embellish and develop their existing qual, or do we have to take all of it and jump ship completely and become, I mean, your evidence that you don't have to do that, but maybe just say a bit about, about whether or not there are some elements, we can take bits of it to support our existing qual work, or actually that doesn't really work and you've got to really you know, dive in. I think like with just about anything, there's purists who think that you should go all in. Um, I'm not one of those, and maybe that's not necessarily a good selling point for myself, but I'm certainly a mix and match kind of person. Um, I don't think you could call it post-qual if you're, if you're not sort of getting into a lot of these elements, but for sure there's, there's things you can take from it in that, you know, this, it's been discussed for a long time, not just in the post-qual context this method ultra kind of thing that we get really stuck on methods and mm. and you know so caught up in doing things the right way that it, it might hold us back from creating different ideas or creating different methods or you know doing something that really suits the situation that you're in for example um so you know i think you could take that idea there but really like you know the purists would argue that you really do need to read a considerable amount of post-structuralist theory to really understand where it's coming from. That is not an easy endeavour. It's not an easy endeavour to do statistics or to do grounded theory either. So I think, mm. you know, it, it takes it takes effort because this way of thinking about the world is not 
the way that most of us were taught to understand the world. So it does take a fair bit of um, conceptual understanding to sort of be able to rethink our habits. I think you're onto something there about how it's becoming just set in stone or there's kind of some, the traditions have just become too crystallized, if you like, and they're just people aren't necessarily questioning some of those steps or those methodologies. So I think it's one of the movements against that crystallization because there's dangers, you know, there's, there's great things about standards, but there's great dangers in becoming really set as well. So I think it's one of the movements. Oh, it's definitely not the only movement. And I would definitely call out to critical qualitative research amongst others that are really, um, you know, been doing this work for a long time. It's one of the movements to try and um, push back against this kind of takeover of core research with some quite quant quant concepts of sort of standardization really uh, and that a lot gets lost by doing that doesn't mean you shouldn't do that but we shouldn't only do that by we i'm saying that the general research population it's okay that some people do that type of work but if we all do that type of work it really constrains what we can we can know and do in the world and that's where i found it really useful is that it's just to like you said just to really encourage one to reflect on those those methodological backgrounds and steps and you do you become comfortable and you think when I'm I'm a grounded theorist and this is what I'm about and this is why I do it and and I think I think for me that's been even this conversation but just the the kind of pre-reading before this has really made me kind of uncomfortable but in a good way why 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 is that the case and why is that you know why are those methods the way that they are and so even if I don't you know necessarily become a post qualitative researcher there are certain you know it's really offered me a, a perspective into why I'm doing what I'm doing and which yeah it's been super super you know interesting and useful just to understand that there are criticisms against these kind of take because it becomes taken for granted in itself that qual like you said it becomes just assumed and self-evident and unquestionable that these things are done because they are just part of qualitative research and as time goes by you tend not to question it, you just do it because it was done before you. And Absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's it's one of those, and the posts are towards that, you know, they're, they're, they're really resisting sort of stagnancy and um, they encourage us to keep moving, keep thinking mm. differently. And that's a great, great take-home message, right? <laughs> and, and where do you see it going post-core? Do you see it as really taking off? I don't know. I think... I, I think the concept won't go away because um, post-humanism and post-structuralism is well and truly, you know, particularly post-structuralism, well and truly underway since the 60s, right? So that's Foucault's been around for a long time, or well, he's died, but um, his ideas have been around a long time. Deleuze and Guattari is extremely popular and then other, you know, post-humanists like Karen Barad and, and um, you know, various other work is 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 very popular in terms of philosophy and sociology at the moment so it's kind of on the cutting edge of that so it's driven by that work so i don't think it's going away whether it's called post-qual or not i think that's contested that's a contested space so it it may not that that label may not exist like it came out of america it came out of education you know it, it pushes for its territories like other things do and but i don't think yeah so the name maybe not but um, the concepts, I think, will live because live at the moment in the margins, which is where they sit and perhaps need to sit. 
and they're there to sort of, you know, push away at this mainstream mainstreaming action in, in the qual space, and and qual does that for quad, <laughs> I guess. So, um, yeah, I think that resistance to those standardized practices and qual will will exist, and that the elements of the theoretical theoretical elements that underpin them won't go away in a hurry. Jenny, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.